This last weekend, I was in San Diego uh, doing a conference for psychotherapists, how to bring mindfulness to psychotherapy. There's more and more of this around the country, and I taught it with Jack Cornfield. And the basic message in the conference in the weekend was really to do with Buddhist psychology, the, the teachings of Buddhist psychology, which say, as the Buddha said quite eloquently, we suffer because we forget who we are. We get caught in some story of being less, of being small, of being deficient, of being right or being wrong, but we forget. And no matter whether the forgetting is a bloated kind of superiority or arrogance or a very contracted sense of, oh, bad me, um, there's suffering in that. And that the path of freedom is really a way of training our attention so that we can be present. Because in the moments of real presence, we come home to the sense of wholeness. We come home to that which is sacred. We come home to really a profound sense of inner freedom. So we taught, a, we, we did a lot of exercises and, and the people there were primarily mental health professionals but they brought up their own issues as, as we do here at most Wednesdays. I would say think of something difficult and then we'd work with it. And there was a, a lot of um, gratitude for the kind of freedom in these practices. People that were relatively new, some of them. And then after we were done we went to the zoo. San Diego has a good zoo as many of you know. <laughs> At the conference, there was a lot of intimacy. The more people got present, the more there was a sense of intimacy. And went to the zoo, and one of the places I loved was the orangutans, and some people were throwing food into their enclosure, and there were two orangutans, a large one and a small one, huddled, and they were kind of watching the food come in together, watching the food come in, and they were, kind of, they were really enjoying it. And another one had his face pressed against the glass, And there was a teenage girl, maybe just 13 young, with her forehead pressed against the glass too. And they were in communion. And there was this intimate attention. She she, she was first watching everything he was doing and then she'd press and then she'd watch him again. And there was this profound presence there. As we left that exhibit, we were talking about um, Rilke, the poet. And he had a writing block at one point. And Rodin, the elder Rodin, suggested to him that he go to the zoo every day for a year, every day, until, uh, as it said, he could capture the essence of the animals. He said that that would reawaken his soul. And the essence of animals is our essence. And in a way, I felt in that moment of watching that young girl, there was no difference between what we do when we sit on a cushion and pay attention to our inner life and her deep attention to the sentient being. And what I'd like to talk about tonight, because it's springtime, is the power of bringing our attention to nature, whether it's our inner nature, or the nature of an animal, or a tree, or another human, that there is a potential for a true freedom, a waking up out of a small sense of self in any moment that we bring a deep attention to the natural world. So that's what um, we'll be exploring. And in, in Buddhism, the given is that we forget, that we go off into a trance where we're living in kind of a virtual reality. 
And this natural world, the beauty and the seasons and the movements, the aliveness, can be an amazing gateway back home, out of this virtual realm and into the vividness and mystery that's right here, into the sacred. And I really think of a lot of the suffering of our world as a lack of the sacred, a lack of a sense of the sacred. We wouldn't be able to hurt this earth if we really paid attention to it. And we wouldn't be able to uh, let animals be damaged the way they're damaged by humans if we paid attention to them. And we wouldn't criticize and treat ourselves harshly if we paid attention. Okay, so attention is right at the centerpiece of what we're exploring here. And I sometimes talk about it in terms of taking refuge, that we take refuge in this presence. Part of the reason I wanted to um, explore this uh, tonight is because there's something about each season that has deep teachings for us, and spring is like that. There's a reason that there's so many holidays that fall in the spring. So early spring, St. Peter's quizzing three new arrivals at the pearly gates and says they can enter if they can answer one simple question. What is Easter? The first man says, oh, that's easy. It's the holiday in November when everybody gets together and eats turkey and is thankful. <laughs> Wrong, replies St. Peter. And he proceeds to ask the second man the same question. The second man replies, nope, Easter's the holiday in December when we put up a nice tree, exchange presents, and celebrate the birth of Jesus. He's kind of, St. Peter shakes his head in disgust, looks at the third man, what's Easter? The third man smiles and looks St. Peter in the eye, real confident. I know what Easter is. Easter is the Christian holiday that coincides with the Jewish celebration of Passover. Jesus and his disciples were eating at the Last Supper, and he was later deceived and turned over to the Romans by one of his disciples. The Romans took him to be crucified, made him wear a crown of thorns, and he was hung on a cross. He was buried in a nearby cave, which was sealed off by a large boulder. Every year, the boulder is moved aside so that Jesus can come out, and if he sees his shadow, there will be six more weeks of winter. (laughs) Six more weeks of winter. Do you think that's what happened this year? (laughs) I mean, it's so cold. I'm just wondering. (laughs) Anyway. So we know that it's not just Easter. It's also Passover and the celebration, really, of not just the physical liberation of the Israelites, but spiritual liberation. And there is something about the season and rebirth that gives the hope and possibility of of new life. Um, and I'll share you one more with you one more that Moshe took his Passover lunch to eat outside in the park, and he sat down on a bench and began eating. A little while later, a blind man came and sat down next to him. And feeling neighborly, the spirit of giving, Moshe passed a sheet of matzah to the blind man. The blind man handled the matzah for a few minutes and then looked very puzzled and finally exclaimed, "Who wrote this shit?" <laughs> I just wanted to be even-handed with the religions, you know. (laughs) So again, it's not a coincidence that holidays of freedom and of coming alive happen in this season. And some of you know I get interested in the science and in the research that if we're talking tonight about taking refuge 
bringing our presence into nature. There's um, more and more research that's showing the the value, the healing properties of being in nature. And one uh, University of Michigan had um, people walk for 10 minutes through a park and then other people work, walk 10 minutes through downtown areas. And as you can intuit, the people that walked through the park outperformed on many different uh, tests, the ones that had walked downtown in terms of their capacity for memory and attention and so on. And they did a similar kind of test looking out a window at a garden versus a parking lot. There's something about the natural world that um, heals us. Another test was major health problems or depression. There was improved functioning more quickly when people were responsible for taking care of plants. So what is it? about being in the elements that in some way is a homecoming and it's, this isn't you know, hard for us that we, we, in some deep way we get that we are made of the elements and that when we're in nature we come home to really what we are we wake up out of that virtual reality and we're more at home in, in an essence that's both vibrant and it's mysterious. It doesn't have quick answers that the mind comes up with. I really like the way um, T.S. Eliot writes about this because um, we can have a sense of how we move through a lot of our day. We're trying to control our life. We're trying to manage things, make things happen. And we're in the identity of a doing self. And our goals are very particular. I want to get this done and I want to impress that person and I want to avoid making that mistake, and etc. And there's something about being in the natural world that reminds us of what we most value. A beingness that's beyond any of the projects of the doing self. So here's D.H. Lawrence. He says, we've fallen into the mistake of living from our little needs until we have almost lost our deeper needs in a sort of madness. Let us prepare now for the death of our present little life and the re-emergence in a bigger life in touch with the moving cosmos. It is a question practically of relationship. We must get back into relation, vivid and nourishing relation to the cosmos and universe. The way is through daily ritual, and the reawakening. We must once more practice the ritual of dawn and noon and sunset, the ritual of kindling fire and pouring water, the ritual of the first breath and the last. To these rituals we must return or we must evolve them to suit our needs for the truth is we are perishing for lack of fulfillment of our greater needs. We are cut off from the great sources of our inward nourishment and renewal, sources which flow eternally in the universe. Vitally, the human race is dying. It is like a great uprooted tree with its roots in the air. We must plant ourselves again in the universe. Now, I find that language really compelling. And when... We get that image of an uprooted tree with the roots in the air. It's kind of like when we're disconnected and we're flailing around trying to make things happen and do things and win our virtual world of tapping on keyboards. 
And the difference between that and putting our roots back in the universe, which could be back in the present moment, back in this body and in this heart, right here, right now. When we're flailing, we're not here and now. And if I had to say that, that's the one basic essence of deep attention, of taking refuge, is that we move from this virtual world of thinking and ideas and the future and we put our roots right in the universe of this moment. So I invite you just even right now to sense again that question of what does it mean to be at home right in this moment? What does it mean for you to put your roots into the universe? And as you arrive again right here, we can sense that there's different layers of how we root ourselves. And the first layer that we'll review tonight is what we do as a training here that's really a gateway, which is we put our roots back into the universe by bringing our attention to the inner body. We start paying attention to the breath and the sensations and the life that's within us. That's the first gateway. This is the, the way that we come home into nature in our own immediate way. We wake up out of the trance of thinking. So the beginning of this training and intimacy of coming back into the universe is to notice our virtual reality when we get lost in it. And for those of you that have come regularly, one of my friends puts it this way when he talks about thinking, he says, you know, we're all nuts. I mean, if you could imagine the person sitting next to you was saying out loud the thoughts that you're having, or if there was a broad, if there was like a loudspeaker and it was broadcasting all the things that you're thinking... I mean, imagine that, that it's just going on, that all your thoughts are coming out through a loudspeaker. And yet, that's what we're living in. You know, I say a lot, we have like 80,000 thoughts a day and 98% of them we had yesterday. We, are go- we live in this virtual reality. So, and, what, and what makes it lack intimacy is that we believe that's what's real. In other words, we're not paying attention to the universe that's right here. We pay more attention to the images and thoughts that are running regularly in our mind than we do to the actuality of the feeling of the breeze or the coolness or the rain or the earth or the smells or the look of a gleam in a child's eye. We pay more attention to our virtual reality. There was a magician working on a cruise ship. He had a parrot that was always ruining his act, saying in the middle of the trick, the card's up his sleeve, or he has a dove in his pocket, or he slipped it through the hole in his hat. Well, one day the ship sank. The parrot and the magician found themselves together on a life raft. For several days the parrot sat silently and stared at the magician. On the fourth day the parrot said, okay, I give up. What did you do with the ship? (laughs) So just to say this training that we do to get from our virtual reality into this here-ness, to put our roots back into the universe, doesn't mean that we're trying to vanquish thoughts. 
And I say this a lot because the question comes often, does mindfulness mean we never pay attention to thoughts? Well, of course we pay attention to thoughts. But the training is that we get the knack of waking up out of the trance. So that even right now, whatever thoughts are going on, you start catching the difference between being inside a thought and these sounds and these sensations that are flowing through this body and whatever mood is here. And we start sensing the vividness of what's right here in contrast to any kind of story that we're living inside of. So again, we'll just begin, uh, because this is the ground level, the inner nature, just to invite you to close your eyes. So the first layer is to take refuge in the inner body. Then we're going to be going into talking about taking refuge in the outer nature. But sense the inner nature. You might notice what weather system, what inner weather system is going on right now. Is there tiredness, restlessness, curiosity or anxiety, sadness, happiness, peace? So that without any judgment, we take refuge in the inner body by noticing what's it like. What does the body feel like? Just feel your sitting posture and then feel the body from the inside out. Are there areas of tightness or holding that have recontracted themselves? Soreness or ache? Flow and vibration? Can you feel the air on your face? Can you sense the skin and what's right inside the skin? This changing flow of vibration, sensation, pulsing, heat or cool. Presence with inner nature, the inner body, is a deep process of noticing and allowing this play of sensation. See how deeply you can say yes to it. So there's no resistance. The more that you can say yes, the more you can discover an open space of awareness that it's all happening in. Letting the form, the inner body, be the gateway to the formless. 
And then it becomes very obvious that this world of form is all in flow. Can you sense the flow? That everything is changing and moving. If you begin to think, it gets broken up into fragments, static fragments. If you re-enter this pure presence of sensation, it's a changing flow, a dance of sensation. So this refuge in the presence with the inner body can reveal the flow of aliveness and in the background the beingness itself. Can you sense your own presence in the background? A presence that's beyond any sense of self or ego, just pure beingness. So this is the foundation of mindfulness, the inner nature, the inner body. And if we bring a deep presence to the inner body, the gift is we sense it as absolute perpetual flow. Could some of you sense that, that just everything's just moving? Kind of looking to see. (laughs) Takes quieting the mind. If you go off into thought, things aren't flowing. If you really wake up out of thought and purely rest in sensation, you begin to sense the flow and you begin to sense the beingness that's behind the flow. And then we explore taking refuge in the nature that's around us. And when we're in trance, the nature around us feels like it's out there. There's a self and there's a world out there. And the self is trying to navigate, like you're driving a car down a road, we're trying to get somewhere. And the world's kind of passing by out there. There's not a sense of intimacy or belonging. More there's a trying to control to get through the day, judging, evaluating, this is good, this is bad, I'm good, you're bad. So the shift just as with the inner body the practice is purely to notice and allow with the outer nature we pause we put aside the thoughts about and we contact directly what's there now it can be a true refuge when we're really struggling with difficult emotions to begin to say okay just this just this right here, this flower, or just this um, sunset, or whatever it is. And this is the way Barbara Kingsolver describes it. She says, every one of us is called upon probably many times to start a new life. A frightening diagnosis, a marriage, a move, loss of a job, or loss of a limb, or a loved one, a graduation, bringing a new baby home. It is impossible to think at first how this will all be possible. 
Eventually, what moves it all forward is the subterranean ebb and flow of being alive among the living. In my own worst seasons, I've come back from the colorless world of despair by forcing myself to look hard for a long time at a single glorious thing, a flame of red geranium outside my bedroom window, and then another, my daughter in a yellow dress, and another, the perfect outline of a full dark sphere behind the crescent moon, until I learned to be in love with my life again, like a stroke victim retraining new parts of the brain to grasp lost skills, I have taught myself joy over and over again. So we let the outer nature become a refuge where we pause and there's actually deepening our presence with what's right here. What it does is it enlarges ourselves. It takes us out of that virtual world that can keep us stuck in despair because we keep telling ourselves the same stories and into the aliveness of what's right here. Mary Oliver describes it this way. She says, The god of dirt came up to me many times and said so many wise and delectable things. I lay on the grass listening to his dog voice, crow voice, frog voice. Now, he said, and now, and never once mentioned forever. So we let the outer nature be a gateway back into nowness, into hereness. Just this geranium, this sound of the crow, those sounds of the cars. There's a way to practice if we're in nature uh, that is very, very powerful with walking meditation, where you begin to walk and let your, instead of the breath, let your body and the sensations of moving be your home base. And just feel yourself stepping, stepping on the earth. As Thich Nhat Hanh says, the miracle is not to walk on water, but to walk on the earth with awareness. So we begin to take refuge in the outer world, learning to walk and feel our bodies as we're moving. And part of what I find really powerful, if you're going to go and walk outside and really take refuge, is to then pause, stop, and absolutely listen and pay attention. And there's this amazing power to moving and being in the world and then stopping. Stopping is really the key because we tend to roll into the future. So if you pause when you're in nature, then all of a sudden nature can start flooding you. There's a receptivity, an openness. And again, the shift here is from this virtual notion of a self doing something or getting somewhere, on our way somewhere, to a true receptivity, just the way internally we'll feel the sensations, a receptivity to receive the flow of nature, to receive the wind and the breeze and the sounds and the trees. Some of you that practice yoga know this, that it's the same with meditation, it's the same with walking, that it's not about doing something, it's about coming into a presence that's profoundly receptive. Yogi Satchidananda, he was the one, they had one of the commercials for their uh, yoga center with him on a surfboard 
and he's in the ocean and the caption says, you can't stop the waves, but you can learn to surf. Come learn to meditate with Swami Satchitananda. <laughs> it's really very cute. But there was said to be someone that asked him if you had to be a Hindu to really, really practice yoga. And his response was, no, no need to be Hindu, be undo. You know, be undo. <laughs> when we take refuge in our outer nature, there's an undoing. Anyone that goes for walks in the woods knows that gradually what gets undone is a sense of a self-centered, absorbed, preoccupied self living in a virtual reality. What gets undone is a sense of being somewhere else. Now, now, and now. When we arrive back in this nowness, then the flow becomes apparent. We can sense everything in nature is flowing, is moving. This is the way Ajashanti puts it. He says, when we stop being the doing self and there just becomes this willingness to take in, the flow arises. And when you stop trying to control and direct and guide things and you discover that life has been unfolding itself. And not only that, there's a deep sense of ease in sensing how life flows. It becomes almost magical. You never know where it will take you. There's simply a creative aliveness unfolding itself. So again, the key in practicing presence with our outer nature is we put aside the thoughts and the doing self and we take it in. And rather than being willful, there's a receptivity. Now I found it interesting that Anthony DeMello, he's a Jesuit priest, described this process of presence, of awakening like this. He said, in wa- awakening or enlightenment is absolute cooperation with the inevitable. How do you like that? <laughs> absolute cooperation with the inevitable. Which means that whether it's our inner nature, whether we're paying attention to our bodily sensations, or whether it's outer nature, that we align ourselves by absolutely opening to the flow. And it's through that that we discover the beingness itself. Be ground, writes Rumi. Be crumbled so wildflowers will come up where you are. You've been stony for too many years. Try something different. Surrender. So we've explored presence with our inner aliveness, presence with the aliveness around us. And it all has to do with pausing, surrendering, receiving. That allows us to arrive in a quality of beingness that opens our hearts, opens our minds, allows us to be free. Now the third level is human nature. We're planting our roots in the universe, the universe of our inner body, the universe of the nature around us, The third level is human nature. And again, we go from a virtual reality into real intimacy. And the virtual reality has others as unreal others. And if you watch the way you move through the day, for most of us, if there's any suffering at all, we're feeling disconnected. We're feeling like there's a self here, there's a world out there, and we're not really that connected. That in some way there's something wrong with me, something wrong with you, 
This is a story about a small boy. A little boy got lost at the YMCA and found himself in the women's locker room. When he was spotted, the room burst into shrieks with ladies grabbing towels and running for cover. The little boy watched in amazement and then asked, What's the matter? Haven't you seen a little boy before? <laughs> so again, there's this, this kind of separation and reactivity that goes on. Last week I described really the suffering of being in conflict that we each, whether we're in conflict or at war with the life within us, our other people, how that really reinforces the deepest sense we have of being separate. So again, the pathway is to deepen attention, to deepen attention and discover the healing that comes when we really bring presence to human nature. So, story for you. Several years ago in Seattle, Washington, there lived a 52-year-old Tibetan refugee. His name was Tenzin, and he was diagnosed with lymphoma. He was admitted to the hospital and received his first dose of chemotherapy. But during the treatment, this usually gentle man became extremely angry and upset. He pulled the IV out of his arm and refused to cooperate. He shouted at the nurses and became argumentative with anyone who came near him. The doctors and nurses were baffled. Then Tenzin's wife spoke to the hospital staff. She told them Tenzin had been held as a political prisoner by the Chinese for 17 years. They killed his first wife and repeatedly tortured and brutalized him throughout his imprisonment. She told them that the hospital rules and regulations, coupled with the chemotherapy treatments, gave Tenzin horrible flashbacks of what he had suffered at the hands of the Chinese. I know you mean to help him, she said, but he feels tortured by your treatments. They are causing him to feel hatred inside, just like he felt towards the Chinese. He would rather die than have to live with his hatred that he's feeling. And according to our belief, it's very bad to have hatred in your heart at the time of death. He needs to be able to pray and cleanse his heart. So the doctors discharged Tenzin and they asked a hospice team to visit him in his home. I, the person who's writing this, was the hospice nurse assigned to his care. I called a local representative from Amnesty International for advice. He told me that the only way to heal the damage from torture is to talk it through. This person has lost his trust in humanity and feels hope is impossible, the man said. But if you were to help him, you must find a way to give him hope. But when I encouraged Tenzin to talk about his experiences, he held up his hand and stopped me. He said, I must learn to love again if I am to heal my heart. Your job is not to ask me questions. Your job is to teach me to love again. I took a deep breath. I asked him, so how can I help you love again? Tenzin immediately replied, sit down, drink my tea, and eat my cookies. Now, Tibetan tea is strong black tea laced with yak, butter, and salt. It isn't easy to drink. But that's what I did. For several weeks, Tenzin and his wife and I sat together drinking tea. We also worked with his doctors to find a way to treat his physical pain. But it was his spiritual pain that seemed to be lessening. Each time I arrived, Tenzin was sitting cross-legged on his bed, reciting prayers from from his books and meditating. As time went on, he and his wife hung more and more colorful tankas, that's Tibetan Buddhist banners on the walls. The room was fast becoming a beautiful religious shrine. When the spring came, I asked Tenzin what Tibetans do when they are ill in the spring. He smiled brightly and he said, We sit downwind from flowers. 
I thought he must be speaking poetically, but Tenzin's words were quite literal. He told me the Tibetans sit downwind so they can be dusted with new blossoms, pollen that float on the spring breeze. They feel this new pollen is strong medicine. At first, finding enough blossoms seemed a bit daunting. Then one of my friends suggested that Tenzin visit some of the local flower nurseries, and I called the manager of one of the nurseries and explained the situation. The manager's initial response was, you want to do what? But when I explained the request, the manager agreed. So the next weekend, I picked up Tenzin and his wife and their provisions for the afternoon. Black tea, butter, salt, cup, cookies, prayer beads, and prayer books. I dropped them off at the nursery and I assured them I'd return at five. The following weekend, Tenzin and his wife visited another nursery. The third weekend, they went to yet another nursery. The fourth week, I began to get calls from the nurseries inviting Tenzin and his wife to come again. One of the managers said, we've got a new shipment of Nicotiana coming in. I might have pronounced that wrong. And some wonderful fuchsias. And oh, yes, we've got some great Daphne. I know they would love the scent of that Daphne. And I almost forgot we have some new lawn furniture that Tenzin and his wife might enjoy. Later that day, I got a call from a second nursery saying they had colorful wind socks that would help Tenzin predict when the wind was blowing. Pretty soon, the nurseries were competing for Tenzin's visits. People began to know and care about the Tibetan couple. The nursery employees started setting out the lawn furniture in the direction of the wind. Others would bring out fresh hot water for their tea. Some of the regular customers would leave their wagons of flowers near the two of them. It seemed that a community was growing around Tenzin and his wife. At the end of the summer, Tenzin returned to his doctor for another CT scan to determine the extent of the spread of the cancer, but the doctor could find no evidence of cancer at all. He was dumbfounded. He told Tenzin that he just couldn't explain it. Tenzin lifted his finger and said, I know why the cancer's gone away. It could no longer live in a body so filled with love. When I began to feel all the compassion from the hospice people, from the nursery employees, and all those people who wanted to know about me, I started to change inside. Now I feel fortunate to have had the opportunity to heal in this way. Doctor, please remember that your medicine is not the only cure. Sometimes love can heal as well. Now, I don't read this story and ha- the message is not if you let in love, you'll heal the cancer. Cancer might or might not heal, but you heal your heart and you discover a freedom that is regardless of what happens on the physical plane. And any disease in the deepest sense comes from feeling separate. Any disease. So love means paying attention. And we can pay attention and begin to learn to pay attention to our inner life, to this inner body in a way that we actually become intimate with the life here and stop the war. That's the possibility. That's the invitation of this practice. The suffering is that we're separate. We've been removed from our own... Our body and our own heart and mind become like an object to us that we're trying to control or fix or make different. But when we deepen our attention so that we begin to sense without thoughts just the flow that's here, we arrive in a presence that's very healing. When we deepen attention to our own heart, we might sense the loneliness that we've been avoiding. 
the fear that we haven't wanted to really acknowledge or the sadness. And then we arrive in that beingness again that's tender. We're not at war. We're at home. And when we pay attention to the outer nature, when we stop enough to sense the blossoms that are there, when we sense the coolness of the air, when we make room for it being however it is, there's a space of appreciation that opens up that is sacred space. I I started by talking a bit about the zoo. And um, I kind of want to return to that because there's a real power when we start paying attention to realizing we belong to whatever we're paying attention to. The teacher Krishnamurti said, if you take a stone and put it in your living room and every day you go past that stone, just spend a few moments paying attention to it, within a few months it'll become a sacred stone. Even more so when it's a being that is something uh, similar vibratory nature to us, when we pay attention to another being, love arises. The little girl with her forehead pressed against that glass and and the orangutan, love was arising. She was caring. If she knew that orangutans were endangered, she would do something about it, probably. We start caring. I want to read you something from uh, Joanna Macy, and I went back to it. Uh, Joanna Macy is a wonderful uh, teacher and writer, spiritual teacher. Some of you might have seen the uh, 60 Minutes segment a couple of weeks ago about the lions in Africa. Can I see how many of you saw that? A few. It's basically that they're, they're poisoning lions and they're um, slated for extinction. And they're poisoning them to protect the wild, you know, the, um, the cows, the cattle. And when we start paying attention, we fall in love with this earth and realize it's part of us. And then we don't want to hurt it. We want to take care of it. So this is what Joanna writes. She says, short-tailed albatross, whooping crane, gray wolf, pellegrine falcon, hawksbill turtle, jaguar, rhinoceros... In Geneva, the international tally of endangered species kept up to date in loose-leaf volumes is becoming too heavy to lift. Where do we now record the passing of life? What funerals or farewells are appropriate? Swallowtail butterfly, howler monkey, sperm whale, blue whale, grizzly bear, brown bear, red kangaroo, Florida panther, leopard... And I'm just naming a couple. There's a grieving that's appropriate, a mourning that's necessary, if we are to respond. The teaching is that in the moment of presence, we're not trying to do something. We're letting it in. We are letting go of that willfulness that's trying to fix or do or act and taking it in. And when we take it in, when we take it in that this precious life is endangered, when we take it in our own sorrows or someone else's sorrows, the sorrow of the the pain of the Tibetan couple, then we respond with compassion and wisdom. But the prerequisite to that response on this planet is this very courageous, receptive presence. We have to be touched. 
So in that spirit, I'd like to do a, a final meditation on taking refuge in our inner nature and our outer nature. The pathway that the Buddha taught is really one of awakening presence. We can awaken presence to the inner body, to this natural world, to the relational field. And what brings it alive, if our attention is deep, is that we'll sense a belonging to what we're paying attention to. So we begin again, over and over, coming home to this very body as a gateway. In this pause, let your attention gently settle into your body. We shift from the virtual reality that is so often what we're living in to the immediacy of feeling the movement of this breath. that we relax again the shoulders and the hands, the belly. And from the inside out, feel this play of sensation. And the intimacy arises when we can say yes to however it is. So rather than doing anything to control. There's a profound receptivity to the life just the way it's expressing. In the stillness to deepen the attention and notice this dance of sensation letting it be received in awareness without any resistance. Attuning to the heart, sensing whatever the state of your heart is right now, and with the same attention. discovering the mood of the heart and allowing it to be as it is, restless or sad, peaceful, happy, fearful. As if you could just bow, truly bow to the life as it's expressing through your heart and sense the natural tenderness and care that arises when we become intimate with the experience of our own heart. And if it helps you to connect with your heart, to put your hand on your heart, as if the very touch is a message of paying attention. It's said that the mind creates the abyss and the heart crosses it. 
So we bring our attention to this inner body and we bring our attention to this heart. And even in a few moments we can sense that we can move from being dissociated or numb or at war to in relationship. We have begun to put our roots into the universe, this living universe of our own being. And in doing so, recognize that sense of beingness. Can you feel your own presence? sometimes described as the empty heart, just a tenderness and an awareness. Widening out the field of attention to sense the spring that we're in, to sense the sky and the flowers, and the promise of new life. The outer nature, the earth, as it's really celebrating itself. And then the invitations to bring to mind someone in your life, human nature, that you'd like to deepen your attention with. or you'd like to have more remembering, more intimacy, so that you're planting your roots in the relational universe, moving from the virtual relationships that we live with each other, where we're mostly just thoughts in each other's minds, to a more immediate, visceral sense. So choosing someone that just for now you'd like to experience that immediacy with more. feeling the movement from the ego, our storyline, to just the heart's willingness to be intimate. And let this person be right here in the room in your, your sense of them. Feel that you're bringing them right here. So that as you deepen your attention, you can sense what does this person need right now? Where's the vulnerability? Where's what's challenging for this person? What might this person need me to know or understand about them? What might this person need from me? So just as people responded to the needs of the Tibetan couple, you can feel that deepened attention letting you know what it is that you might offer. It might be just your prayer. It might be some expression of love or understanding. It might be some material or physical help. You can imagine offering something to that person and them receiving it.
Deepening your attention with that person, sensing their goodness. How this being loves their humor, their appreciation of beauty, their aliveness. So that if you let your ideas of this person fall away, you can just feel in a visceral way the heart's love, just love. Moving from the forms, the particulars, to this formless, loving presence. Letting that space of heart be as wide as it truly is to include this being and other beings and those that are here in this room. To let it include those creatures that are endangered, the whooping crane, the peregrine falcon, the hawksbill turtle, the lions. To let it include the earth, our mother, and all beings the sense that the more you pay attention, the more you become that loving presence. John Seuss writes, to be of the earth is to know the restlessness of being a seed, the darkness of being planted, the struggle toward the light, the pain of growth into the light, the joy of bursting and bearing fruit, the love of being food for someone, the scattering of your seeds, the decay of the seasons, the mystery of death, and the miracle of birth. May all beings know the blessing of homecoming. May all beings awaken to the presence, to the loving presence that knows belonging, that includes in these hearts the world. May there be peace on earth. May there be peace everywhere. May all beings be free. Namaste. The teaching you have received has been freely offered. If you would like to contact the Insight Meditation Community of Washington to make a donation or to learn more about our programs, please visit our website at www.imcw.org.